So I want to frame my opening introduction for you this morning. And, and I actually want some participation, because I want to kind of see what direction I want to go with my opening illustration. How many people do we have here this morning that love history, specifically military history? Whether that's reading books, watching movies, documentaries. Let me see you hold your hands up high. Okay, now we're going to go complete opposite direction. How many fans of like Marvel Universe do we have? Like superheroes and all of that type of thing. Is there anyone that's brave enough to raise their hand and take ownership of that? Did you know that there's actually similarities in ideology between those two things? Let me, let me frame it for you this way. I love history. And military history is one of my favorites. One of the highlights of being a pastor when I served in Illinois was being able to sit down with some of the older members in the congregation that had served. We had a, a wonderful man who was a World War II veteran. And he traveled all over France with the 10th Mountain Division and just hearing the stories of what took place and travels throughout Europe during that campaign. It, it was fascinating. My brother-in-law is actually a military historian. He works on the um, Fort Campbell. He works for the 101st Airborne Museum there. His specialty is the Vietnam War. He's writing a book on the 101st Airborne's involvement during the Vietnam War. So I love interacting. I love hearing these stories. And just like reading a good comic or watching, something stands out time and time again. That line would be a few good men. Have you ever noticed that one of the things that makes a good storyline for a documentary or a movie, whether it's a true story or fiction, is that it takes character who was unlikely to accomplish something. And he rose above everyone else, right? Having you talk to those people who served and they have that story about someone who did some remarkable feat. It wasn't because he was stronger. It wasn't because he was of a higher rank. It was because of in that time, in that moment, he rose above the circumstances. That's why I use the illustration of the superheroes. That's kind of what appeals to them, right? You see these people that at first glance look like you and I. Whether that's Spider-Man or Clark Kent or Batman, right? Because Batman is just a normal guy with all these things. And what do they do? They do these tremendous feats to defeat evil. At times we can sit back and we can look and go, I could never do that. But it has a way of inspiring us, doesn't it? Reading a good biography, watching a good movie... Listening to a history lesson has a way of, through telling these stories, causing us to want to do better. They do two things. They remind us that great things can be accomplished through just a few good men. When years of training, leadership, and execution come together to accomplish a specific purpose, it is amazing what can result. They also motivate us that we can be used in great ways if we train, 
prepare, and respond when a situation arises. In the first chapter of Titus, we see where Paul is laying out for Titus the main purpose of why he is sending him to Crete. He's laying out the goal that he is to accomplish, the need as to why this goal is needed, and we see him go and raise up these leaders, motivate them to lead this church to accomplish great things for the gospel. Big idea of this first chapter, I like to remind people of this. The chapter or the character qualities that are necessary for biblical leaders in the church are traits that every believer should strive to emulate and develop in their lives. Why am I preaching on this this morning? Because probably the most, one of the most common statements that is made to myself or my wife or my family goes something like this. We love hearing what God is doing in Buffalo, but we could never do that. We could never do what you guys are doing. Fill in the blank. We hear it said about everything. It could be something as simple as you guys are constantly having people over in your home that you'd hardly even know. We could never do that. Or you are just sharing the gospel and building relationships. We could never do that. I want to challenge you this morning that we can do that. Because when we look at the local church, the structure that God lays out here in Titus, and essentially the background for Titus was this. There had been the gospel that had went forth in Crete. People had gotten saved, they had heard the word, they had responded, but before a strong church had been able to be established, most likely Paul had to leave, and kind of this church was left basically kind of floundering for purpose, direction, and leadership. So Paul was sending Titus back to this group of believers to identify and raise up leaders or elders within that church to strengthen, lead, and teach that body of believers. But what was amazing as he does this, he was going through and he lays out these qualifications, and other than one or two, they are all things that every believer should be striving for. There are character qualities and traits that should be found and should be worked toward within the entirety of the body of Christ. So going back to that question or that statement, we could never do what you guys do. As we go throughout Titus 1 this morning, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, we're going to look at the qualifications for biblical leadership, and we're going to be reminded as to the utmost need and importance for believers to be rising to these traits. And it is our prayer that you won't leave here this morning just going, I'm so thankful for Pastor Mark. Now, I hope that's one of the things, is that you have a godly pastor who meets these things and is doing these things. But secondly, I hope you will leave here this morning going, wow, I want to rise up to all that I can be to go and do the work 
in this church, but then in the community for the sake of the gospel. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that when it comes to the work of making disciples, sharing the gospel, serving you in this life, it is not something that is dedicated and set aside for just a few good men. It is the purpose that we are here. It is the purpose of what the church is to be, to give you glory as we grow that we would go and serve you, proclaim your name, to see the gospel go forth. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, as we see it in its context, that we will then take the message that was given and apply it to our lives. So that we don't just leave here with more knowledge, that we are challenged and our hearts have been stirred to go and implement what your word has been teaching us in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In verses 1 through 4, we have the traditional Pauline greeting for his letter. He, he's laying out kind of the, the key aspects of what he would communicate when he was writing to a congregation. He's laying out his authority, he's laying out his position, he's kind of giving a, a, a framework for the direction that he's going to go in the letter. And, and what I like to call these first four verses is Paul's gospel greeting. But what I want to do this morning is rather than just giving it the introduction, I want to highlight five different aspects of this gospel greeting as our first section in the sermon and see how they can apply to our lives to motivate us, to push us to be one of those few good men for Christ. So the first thing in verse 1a, it says, Paul, a servant of God. So Paul is starting off by identifying himself as the author, but he identifies himself as a servant Servant of God. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament where Paul uses this exact phrase. The word servant is the exact same word that can also be translated as slave throughout different portions of the New Testament. Paul is wanting Titus and the believers at Crete to know that while he is the one writing the letter, and he is acting as one who is or he is acting as one who is owned by God. He has complete dependence upon his master. This is so important. Because from the very start of this letter, what Paul is doing is he is showing no matter how greatly God uses you, it is not based upon your giftings or your personality exclusively. It's based upon the fact that we are functioning and living as a servant of the all-powerful one. That our master is the one who is guiding us, who is motivating us, who is driving us to do everything that we do in this life. Because let me tell you, 
it is really easy to rely upon your own strengths, right? Things that you are skilled in, that you are gifted in, and it's good. God gifts the body differently to, to do different needs. We need that. We need people that are gifted in counseling and music and hospitality and all of these areas, and that is crucial. Even when we are using our gifts, it is in a recognition that we are still humbly submitting to Christ and God as our head. So the second thing that we see Paul in this introduction, first was he's a servant, second he's a spokesman. He specifically refers to his position of apostle, but the word apostle is literally one who was a spokesman. So we can be spokesmen for Christ. These two initial identifiers that Paul uses are a useful reminder that our authority is not found only in what we say, but it is found when we are faithfully proclaiming the message found in Scripture. He goes on in verse 1b through 4 and lays out how his goal, how his purpose in writing this is to be an equipper for the church. His goal is that he labors to see people saved. That's a crucial importance here. Because, let me take this back to our ministry in Buffalo. The next series of questions that we get asked the most relate to the physical structure of the church. Do you guys have a building yet? Are you guys self-sufficient yet? Are you guys, do you have leaders put in place yet? Do you have a kids program? Good questions, right? Nothing wrong with these questions. But we remind people all the time, our goal is to labor to see people saved. As Paul is equipping the church at Titus, we are striving to equip the believers in Buffalo to labor for people to come to know Christ. And from that, a church will be formed. From that, leaders will be put in place, just as took place in Titus. That is the model that we are doing in Buffalo. In verse 4, the fourth thing we see in this introduction is it says, To Titus, my true child in the common faith. Paul is introducing the recipient of the letter, and he refers to Titus as my true child in the faith. Paul is writing to Titus to go to Crete to disciple the believers that are there. And in doing this, Titus is living out gospel fruit from Paul's investment in his life. That father-child, that spiritual father, spiritual son or daughter mentality is so important because that is one of those goals that we are to be striving toward. The fruit that we are able to see and find from the gospel. It's not just what is God doing in your life, it's who are you impacting with the gospel? Who are the disciples that you are making? Is the gospel passing down through the generations? The final thing that he does here is he concludes the introduction with a gospel greeting. 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He always wanted to leave his audience focusing on the true authority. He can say grace and peace because grace is given to man and peace is a promise we have as a believer. Grace and peace are two benefits of the gospel that we can experience when we have trusted Christ. So the first thing that we see is the gospel greeting. The second is in verses 5 through 9 where Paul is challenging Titus on the few good men. In verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He starts off by challenging him on the importance of order. As you read and study scripture, this is one thing that becomes extremely clear, is that the God of the Bible is a God of order. The importance of stewardship, of rule, and order are clearly seen as an important thread throughout all of scripture. So it should come as no surprise that when it comes to the church, God will have high expectations and a clear order and structure for the church. So what I want to challenge us on this morning is we all recognize the importance of that when it comes to the structure of the church, right? We recognize the importance of taking serious the pastor that will lead us. We recognize the importance of learning and getting to know the missionaries that will represent our church and that they're going to be ordered and structured in what they do. Just as it is important for the church, we should be ordered and structured in our lives for how we are to accomplish the mission that God has given us. Are we taking that same seriousness, that same discipline to examine and organize our lives around the commission that God has given us to fulfill? Paul lays that foundation and then he introduces the position that Titus was to raise up, to recognize and appoint. The position of elder. This was how Titus was to structure and organize the church that was increased. He was to recognize, equip, and raise up the pastors, the elders in that congregation to provide oversight. But it wasn't something that just Titus was to go and, I like this guy, let me appoint him, or I think he's successful in the business world, let me appoint him. It was a, here is the seriousness of this position, representing and leading the body of Christ. So he proceeds to lay out a series of qualifications for this position. These are qualifications that have to be found in someone who is a, a, an elder or a pastor in the church, but these are qualifications that we should be striving for in our life. So when we are challenged by a sermon or through our study of God's Word in God, use me in this way, grow me in this way, we can look at passages like this and see laid out examples of what we can be striving for to live and serve in a way that accords with God's word and who God is. So the first category of qualifications is that 
He is to be above reproach in his family. He uses the phrase above reproach to introduce kind of little sections of qualifications here. Above reproach is the idea that there should be no legitimate accusation that could be brought against the elder that would bring disrepute on the gospel or the church. His life should be seen as worthy of emulation. That definition is crucial. Because we live in a day and age where believers who are above reproach by scriptural standards will be getting accusations of the opposite against them in the world in which we live. So what does it mean to be above reproach? It said, no legitimate accusation And then here's the important part, that would disrepute on the gospel or the church. Do you see that? Folks, if we are making disciples and proclaiming Christ, there might be times when someone will make an accusation that you are being unloving, that you are being unkind, that you are viewing yourself as better than other people. And by all means, if those accusations are made, examine yourself to make sure that that isn't the case. Make sure you know that if your actions are reflecting Scripture, that is who we are to be above reproach in regards to our God, to the commands of His Word, not to the whims of our society that change throughout time. So he says, above reproach with his family. A friend of mine, Dave Dietz, wrote a book on selecting elders, and he wrote this on this section. He said, the clear analogy between the elder's ability to manage the church and his ability to manage his family is clearly spelled out in Scripture. Paul makes it clear that if a man cannot take care of his family, he cannot take care of the things of God when it comes to the church. As a husband, as a father, and as a pastor, that is a tremendous challenge to me. Even if I wasn't a pastor, to see spelled out so clearly that God recognizes you need to be doing this in your home to be effective doing it elsewhere. What a tremendous challenge. But that also can be applied to women. That can be applied to children. If we are not living these truths out in our homes, in our families, in our churches, are we living them out or are we even capable of living them out to give God the glory outside of those contexts? The the characteristics that he highlights, the first is the husband of one wife. This shows the seriousness that Paul places upon how a husband rules his home and if it is a reflection of how God has designed it. The second thing is it says his children are believers. This is pointing to the overall behavior more than just the specific profession. Because we can't determine when each child trusts Christ, but are they living a life where their behaviors are in submission to the leadership of the Father in relation to the gospel? And that we see more clearly where it says, his children are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Essentially, they are not characterized 
by indulgence to worldly pleasures and refusal to obey authority. That's in relation to the home. Second is above reproach in the community. You see how high the standard Paul was instructing Titus on these areas? Do you see how this applies to all of us, not just the elders and pastors in our churches? So when you read through the next four verses, you will see that an elder of the church is to not be arrogant. So rather than arrogant, the opposite would be humble, modest, and lowly. I was just having a conversation with someone this week, and I made this point. I said there are many practices in modern business that are perfectly acceptable that contradict many aspects of how a believer should live their life. Arrogance is one of them. I read the biography of Elon Musk um, earlier this last year. Brilliant man. But I can remember I was reading in an interview at the same time, and he was talking about his executive assistant who had been with him for a number of years. This was literally the person that planned his calendar, kept his schedule, organized his day. And he shares the story where she came up to him and asked for a raise. She'd been working insane hours. If you know anything about Elon Musk, you can only picture that. And she asked for a raise, and here was his response to her. He said, I want you to take two weeks off. If I can do your job without you, you're fired. I don't need you. Now, the world looks at that, the business world, and goes, I need to have that kind of confidence. I need to have that kind of drive. I need to be able to do that, you see? But that type of attitude, that type of arrogance, should have no place in the life of a believer. Should have no place in the life of a leader of the church. And that's why the above reproach according to biblical standards is so important. Not quick-tempered. Not to respond in anger or reactionary. Not a drunkard or violent, reckless, inappropriate behavior that would essentially undermine all the other qualities. Not greedy for gain. Pursuing illicit material gains. He must be hospitable. I love this one. Hospitable is not just opening your home to people, okay? This is so critical. Because there are people that can't do that for various reasons. Hospitable has the idea of a genuine concern for the welfare of others. Do you see how these characteristics... Working together paint a picture as to the type of man that should be leading a church, but also working together paint a picture as to what the heart of someone who is following after Christ and progressively becoming more like our Savior should look like. This is what should be driving us every day as we seek to Live out the gospel. 
as we seek to be part of a church that is glorifying God in our community. He must be a lover of what is good, self-controlled, honest, holy, disciplined, in his spiritual walk, but also in his testimony at work and in the community. That's why I put that there for the discipline, because guess what? There are a lot of people who meet a lot of these qualifications when we are with other believers. And then who fail on a lot of these qualifications when we are around the world. We need to have consistent lives for Christ. Just as there were problems and conflicts and struggles that were creeping into the church at Crete because they had not recognized and put men of character and repute to lead and shepherd that congregation, our families, our churches, our workplaces will crumble if we do not strive to fulfill those same character qualities and rise to the position that God has for us. The third thing that we see is that they are to be faithful to Scripture. He must hold fast to Scripture. This has the idea of having a clear understanding of the Gospel and basic doctrine. Or, even more than that, we need to strive to be people that are not easily swayed. He must be able to teach, and he must be able to confront false doctrine with Scripture. The Apostle Paul concludes chapter 1 by painting the scenario as to the need. And folks, this scenario is every bit as real today. There are false teachers who are seeking to oppose Christ and the Gospel at every turn, within the church and without. And we are to be striving to put in place and to develop our lives to be able to combat the oppositions that the devil is throwing at us. And it is only when we are taking seriously that in our own lives and within the church that we can hope to see effective ministry of the gospel, churches planted, and lives transformed. So he ends in verses 10 through 16 by reminding them of the reality of this all around them. For there are many who are insubordinate Essentially, people that are stirring up trouble, that are rebellious, that that are going around seeking to destroy what God desires. Empty talkers. Do you think they had social media when he wrote this letter? I mean, come on, right? How many of the posts that you see on social media or the news literally say a ton of things without communicating anything? Just read a Twitter feed sometime on a topic of theology. Just read everything. This week, what would be a relevant one? Um, he gets me. Okay? I am not going to state a position from that from the pulpit, but if you want to see an example of empty talkers, go read a discussion about something like that after the Super Bowl. Some truth is in there, but there's going to be a lot of things where people are just regurgitating statements, okay? Thin and without. Those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced. That is a harsh word. Okay? 
That's not a, let's come alongside and graciously. No, when we see people that are purposely living lives and breaking, it needs to be put a stop to. So we see the character of the false teachers. We see the reminder to confront them. And then in verses 12 through 14, we're going to end with this. You see the testimony of that. In verses 5 through 9, the whole thing is about being above reproach, right? Giving the idea that if you are living this way, according to Scripture, this is what your testimony is known as, and it's giving God the glory and giving you the opportunity to whether lead the church or make disciples. In verses 12 through 14, Paul is reminding them that these false teachers or these people that are not living in this way, their testimony is also clearly known to those around them. What did he say? Cretans are always, his, their own people say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. Our true character will shine forth. Our characteristics that we are striving to shape our lives around will be what impacts our effectiveness for the gospel. And ultimately, there is hope that is found in the message of the gospel and in shaping our entire lives around that, just as there is hopelessness in a world that is seeking their own fulfillment and desires of the flesh. So three takeaways. Are you living your life in submission to God? Or are you trying to find your freedom based on your own desires and beliefs? Secondly, what are the areas in your life that need to be addressed for your life to line up with the standards that God desires for His children? Why are these two things important? Because just like the few good men in a great military story, were not necessarily extraordinarily gifted. They were men who rose above because of their training, because of their commitment. God desires us to all be a few good men and women for Him. And the third thing is why this is so important, so that we can recognize the character of false teachers and guard against those same tendencies in our own life. Pray for us as we are doing the work of the ministry in Buffalo. We pray for you that your ministry, your church, that we will be filled with people who are structuring our lives around how God desires us to be, that we are above reproach in our communities, not for our own recognition, but so that the gospel can go forth and the church of God can grow. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be part of your plan to make disciples, that you have already commissioned us as your followers. And Father, if there are people here that are not one of your own, have not recognized their own sinfulness in recognition to a holy God and placed their trust in Christ alone for their salvation, Father, that is the start. 
Because none of us are capable of being good enough or doing enough on our own. It is only by your grace and mercy that you can use us to give you the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.